We'd like to thank uh, Ernie Merrick for being the presenter tonight. Um, Ernie was awarded his Order of Australia medal in 2014 for his services to football. As you'll uh, pick up the gist during the presentation, he was born in Edinburgh and comes from a family of circus performers who travelled around the fairgrounds of Scotland, something he's always been very proud of. Before entering head coaching ranks, Ernie was a PE teacher as well as an amateur football player. Ernie most recently managed the Newcastle Jets Football Club. He's a former coach of the Victorian Institute of Sport, Hong Kong National Football Team, A-League Football Clubs, Melbourne Victory Football Club and Wellington Phoenix Football Club. Under his leadership, Victory won the 2006 and 7 A-League Premierships, finished second in the group phase of the 2018 Asian Champions League and in the 2008-2009 season won the treble, the pre-season cup, the premiership and the grand final. During the 2008, sorry, during the 2009-10 season, despite severe season-ending knee injuries to key players, victory once again reached the grand final. He also took the Jets to the grand final in the inaugural, his inaugural season of coaching of 2017-18. His achievements make Ernie the most successful A-League coach in the history of the A-League. Uh, and like to welcome you, Ernie, uh, for your presentation tonight, and we're all looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, can I just state there? It's a, uh, we were talking about it earlier. I'm not on any social platforms, so they're all in posters on Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, all those things. It's none of them are me. I am. Um, this is me live now, though, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat with everyone. And what I tried to put together was. Some of the things that's occurred to me, some of my thoughts on the game. Um, I've got some video clips of my coaching at several different clubs. And uh, I guess I'm trying to explain to people what I was trying to achieve at the time. I'll only show you the successful clips. I won't show you any unsuccessful ones for obvious reasons. And uh, coach survival is very, very tough. So if I help anyone stay in the game a little bit longer, than they would normally have, then uh, I've done my job. I always uh, plan my next holiday because losing your job is inevitable. Uh, it always ends in tears, and uh, sometimes having a break is good to get your life back. I do want to talk about uh, a seven-year phenomena, which is very noticeable, and uh, Neil, you'll appreciate this. In AFL football, where coaches nowadays tend to last a bit longer, Bomber Thompson was about to get sacked uh, just before his, the end of his sixth year. And uh, a couple of people present especially stuck up for the guy and he won a premiership in his seventh year. And Club Geelong has been very successful ever since. Damien Hardwick was almost exactly the same. Richmond, 2010, about to get sacked in 2016. His president stuck by him and he won his first championship in 2017. Alec Ferguson, 86, first premiership in 93, seven years. He wouldn't have lasted very long had he not won the FA Cup after four years, but again, a manager that lasted seven years and was very successful. And I believe that business startups to being pretty successful in business and stable is a similar time frame. So I want to tell you coaches out there now, you've got no chance of surviving seven years without a championship. We're in a tough business, and I try and talk most people out of being a full-time coach. Amateur coach, part-time, keeping your job, fine. 
But full-time coaching is a bit of a tough gig. This I hear a lot of, you know, what do you think of coaching? They call it your coaching philosophy. I'm not big on calling it a philosophy. Um, to me, that's uh, about, that's a sort of deeper meaning about the understanding and the existence of human beings and the meaning of life. And I'd rather leave that to Monty Python. My style is more about thinking what the, how you want to play the game. What's your style of play? Do you want to be an attacking coach? Do you want to defend and play on the break? And once you've decided on how you think the game should be played, then you design your strategy around that. And your strategy is also very dependent on the quality and type of players that you have and the situation you inherit. But there's never, to me, one formation. There's always two. There's your offensive formation where you take use the ability of the players that you have in their best positions and defensively how you counter the opposition. So instead of calling it two formations, we'll call it an offensive formation and a defensive structure. In attack, there's, there's talk of possession, control, a short passing game. There's direct right play, which they use in Scotland a, long, a lot, long ball, second ball. There's counter-attacking football. And defensively, there's a high press. There's low zonal defense. There's man marking rather than zone marking. And to me, it's about being flexible enough to be able to adopt any of these any time in, in a match. With uh, an attacking formation, 4-2-1-3 is one favorite, which switches defensively often to 4-2-3-1. There's only one club plays that formation that's in the top six of the finals at the moment, and that's Melbourne City. The 4-2-2-2 in attack and defense 4-4-2, there's two clubs in the finals play that system very successfully, uh, Sydney and Phoenix. And the five at the back and sometimes... 3-4-3 three, three in attack is uh, the, the most popular system in the top six at the moment. Um, Perth Glory play that way, Western United, and I forget the other one. Considerations for your system is really about what quality of players that you have available. If you've got two high-quality strikers, you can play two ninths. If you've got three terrific centre-backs that are quick, maybe you'll go with a back three. If you've inherited a team that aren't too good in keeping possession of the ball, maybe for the first year you've got to play very defensively and counter-attack a 5-2-3 type formation. Your position on the table, sometimes you're forced to be more defensive or if you're near the top, you can be more offensive. So there's several things that control the type of system and how you're going to play the game. Once you've decided on your style of play, your strategy will evolve, but you really got to have aims and objectives and, and targets for the, the players to achieve, whether it be numbers in the penalty box when you're attacking, uh, play the, through the mid-third or bypass the middle third. I've always felt that you've got to get numbers forward. And um, to me, you, in my opinion, you measure your strategy on the number of opportunities you have to score goals at one end against the number of opportunities the opposition have. Winning the game 1-0, 2-0 doesn't always say that your strategy, doesn't always tell you that your strategy is working because 
the quality of the striker finishing or the quality of the goalkeeper can be the difference. But all you can do is make sure, if your strategy is right, that you have more opportunities than the other team has. Here's uh, an example of, I think I was coaching Phoenix here against Wanderers away from home and uh, a more direct long ball type of game. Towel is uh, the man to break that drought. Came off the hand of uh, Nichols, but accidentally. Redenton now has the ball in midfield in the middle third and uh, he's looking forward to our strikers. In this case, I think it's Powell and Krishna. And if you've got pace, a ball over the top can work. Denton looking for Powell and he's got goal side of Jamison and he's lifted it over the top of Redmayne and there is the first hat-trick of the A-League campaign and it's gone to Blake Powell. Ben Sigmund's on the ball at the back against Adelaide and Ben is a bit of an agricultural type player, always 100% and a great guy to work with but don't expect him to play int intricate passes through the midfield. And when you've got someone like Roy Krishna up front and you're def the opposition defence are playing a high offside line of space to use. First goal of the campaign for Goodwin. Or chance now, and it could be the equaliser, quick as you like it is! Do not turn away, do not blink an eyelid. It's 1-1 in Wellington, Roy Krishna. Now, we were up 3-0 away from home in that game. And uh, in the 55th minute... Some teams, I guess, would consider shutting the shop, uh, defending, uh, parking the bus in front of the penalty spot. But there are other options. And to me, in the 55th minute, you don't want to sit back and let the other team and encourage the other team to come at you. First two, the loose ball was Bonavazia. Here's Powell again. Wellington enjoying a good little spell of possession. Durante. And you'll notice that the Phoenix are keeping the ball and they're keeping the ball really well. And they're, most importantly, they're keeping the ball in the front half. So when there is a chance of losing possession, Dylan Fox nicks in quickly to win the ball back again. By Denson. Oh, the idea was right. Good determined play by Dylan Fox to get there ahead of Mark Bridge to keep Wellington on the front foot. Riera. Rydenton. Fenton. And Powell. Bonavazia. Rydenton and Duranto. It's about 30 or 40 passes they've strung together here, Wellington. And so you don't always have to park the bus. So there was an example of fairly direct play, long ball. The, the back line of Adelaide were high, Krishna in behind, Pearl in behind against the Wanderers. So you don't always have to play through the midfield. And when you are 3-0 up, and I think we went on to win... Uh, by five goals, you don't have to defend in front of your 18-yard box. So I'm trying to show you examples of some of the things can be done without always sort of adopting the, the tried and true method, which doesn't always work.
once you've decided on a strategy, your recruiting is, is very important. Assuming that you've stayed there long enough to get a second season, some players that you don't want to keep at your club, you've moved them on, you get the chance to bring in the type of players to play the style you want to play. You, it's important that you have sort of job descriptions for these players, knowing what channels are going to work in, what sort of pace they have, whether you need an extra midfielder, whether you've got a 10, you play with two nines or a, two wingers and a central striker with a number 10 in behind. But recruiting is a crucial part of what you do. And to me, that's, that's a big job for the coach and the help of his assistants. In my case, Gary Cole was a big help as well. When recruiting, it's often thought you don't want troublemakers. And the easy side of, of, uh, of assessing your situation is going, oh, I don't want a big personality. I'd rather have someone that does as they're told, follows instructions as a team player, and doesn't get out of hand. But I'm afraid you don't win anything with someone like that. You've really got to have a bit of spirit in the team. I read an article today in uh, Fox Sports webpage and um, they were talking about the, in Arsenal there was lots of arguments and discussions and fighting at training I'm sure they exaggerated it but the team that year went the whole year undefeated never lost a game so there are different characters make up a team obviously you can't have someone uh, causing major mayhem and trouble um, but if, if they're fiery people, if they're competitive people, sometimes you need to control them in some way, shape, or form. But they're the ones that win something for you. But when it comes to recruiting, I can't emphasize how strongly the goal scorers are your key players. Your defenders will always do a job. Sometimes their panel beaters will always do a job for you, but your goal scorers win games for your defense will save a game but not win a game for you unless they get forward your defenders and score from headers or set plays. So just to emphasize, goal scorers win games. Definitely goal scorers win games. And they're your crucial signings and your ability to retain them. And some of the strikers that I've worked with, Archie Thompson was probably the best, Daniel Alsop, Robbie Cruz, Hernandez, Krishna Burns, Nabut, Petrados, Donovan, McGree, Hoffman, Mori from the old NSL, and Steve Smith. What a difference these players make. And when you lose them, your team drop enormously in quality and results. So I've talked a little bit about your style of play, your strategy, areas that they operate in, how you recruit, the key people to recruit. When you get into gameplay, the game's the strategy becomes a fairly dynamic cycle. You have your attacking formation at the top here in possession of the ball, in where the scoring opportunities are. You lose possession and you transition quickly into your defensive structure. It may be in your, depending on your type of players you have and how you want to play, you may press in the front third they may be very fit, very capable of tackling and defending hard in that front third and working hard. But, you know, you get a player like Archie Thompson, it's very hard to get Archie to defend well. And yet alongside Archie in the first couple of years, Daniel also, he overdid it. So Archie probably wouldn't do too much, which meant he was always free when we won possession, which wasn't a bad thing. Danny also would do too much and finish up in the back third. So I had a lot of time 
spent a lot of time working on Archie getting a little bit more de- better defensively and Daniel also doing a little bit less work defensively. In some cases, you would prefer to reset in a zone formation in the middle third to win the ball in the middle third and prevent the opposition penetration by delaying their attack. Once you win the ball, it's uh, looking to transition forward quickly. I'm a big, big fan of quick forward invasion into the territory of the opposition to get into goal-scoring opportunities, going back again to your attacking formation and then creating goal-scoring chances. And that cycle of those four phases continues. Here's a quick counter and, uh, and more of a possession build-up. So I was, this is when I was coaching the Jets uh, against my old club, the Victory. Quite work out between Akili and Troisi. This is Shaiya. He does well. Very quick uh, from Baldwin to Steve Yugarkovic, who played it well to forward and wide to, to Jaiya, and straight into attack, looking for Roy O'Donovan, who continually gets into good scoring positions, and he, he's one of the few people in the league that can still hit a ball. Well, to run that one down. It's around Donachy. Little gravity shirts, a good ball as well. Really intelligent play by the Jets and O'Donovan just trying to guide it into their range, but not Storm Rue on that occasion. So that was a quick attack. That attack from gaining possession to getting a strike on goal was 15 seconds. Now we have more of a patient build up because uh, victory have dropped off a little bit more. Jair. So we're playing through the lines and switching the point of attack from one side to the other side through Yugarkovic and Petratos. Victory have completed just 48 passes so far. Sorry, the Jets, I should say. Completed just 48 passes in the game. Out of a chance here. Sprayed by Thomas. Only as far as Jair. Blocked by Deng. So that, that attack was more of a patient sort of short passing build-up, which is what was suited for that moment in the game, where victory wasn't gung-ho forward and we could catch them out, out in the quick counter. They were more organised in defence when they were attacking. That was a 31-second build-up play. How do, you, how do you coach these things? I think, I think your strategies is coached and implemented through a range of game scenario type training sessions or we used to call them condition games or constraints led games and the most important part of these games is making it as real as possible so that the transfer from the training ground onto the pitch is very positive which is what Ron Smith talked about last week the transfer is the key how realistic is it how much pressure can you put them under change the size of the training area, large, short, small areas, larger areas, work continually on the decision-making to make the training session as realistic as possible. And there you have the, the, the perception, decision-making, execution type of rules. They're always scanning, they're always making decisions, and they're executing in quality passing or dribbling or shooting under pressure. And you try to make this easier for them by 
having very strategic aims and movement patterns that you're trying to drive into the players so that their decision-making is in line with your strategic aims. Everything is player-focused. It's ball-centered. It's about the positioning of players depending on where the ball is. And there are basically two learning styles. Implicit learning where you learn through trial and error and success. And this, this training setup is designed to deliver the outcomes that you're looking for, whether it be quick attacks, good possession in midfield. Um, it was often said to me that errors are a big problem. Well, you're not going to be much of a coach if you worry about errors because every error is really an opportunity to learn. It's a learning situation. Explicit learning is, is more guided instruction, explanations, and there's a place for that as well. I don't think it's all one or all the other. It's just on a continuum. And the more elite level you are, the more it's implicit learning, the, the lower skill you are and the younger you are, it's more explicit learning. Implicit, the top level, explicit, bottom level, but always a combination of both. If I can explain that technically a little bit, uh, we play in a team invasion sport, a bit like uh, a lot of other sports, uh, like hockey, AFL, rugby league, rugby union, netball. So our those type of sports are open skill sports because the environment is moving and changing all the time and you're operating with other people. So the passing or dribbling outcomes are much more important than the technique that's used. Whereas a closed skill sport is like gymnastics or high diving the, or golf. The environment doesn't change very much. I've never seen anyone running up to do a vault on a box horse and someone moves the horse to the right or to the left a little bit just before you take off. That would cause chaos. So vaulting and gymnastics, it's all about technique, your ability to aesthetically perform. Golf, it's about the outcome of a technically very accurate type shot that doesn't have to change too much um, because you're not under pressure from an opponent. And so players are continually scanning, perceiving the, the environment, making a decision in line with the strategic plan that's been placed, uh, uh, that's been imposed or implemented in the team environment. And the technical movement is your skilled action as a result of the decision you've made. Arsene Wenger states on perception, decision-making, and execution, the problem in football is that you learn how to play the wrong way around. First execution, only skilled drills. Then decision-making, pass it there, pass it here, and then perception comes in last. And it's a very good point he makes. So what we are trying to do is actually program the player to play in a specific way, uh, and that's on, based on the way we think the game should be played and to the strengths of the players that we have. And so the playing patterns are the way that suits your team to play to get maximum results. The programming doesn't mean you're robotic. It means that you're giving direction. For example, you receive the ball in midfield. Can you play the ball for, forward, the first option? Not exactly where you play it. You choose. But can you play it forward? If you can't, can you switch the play to the other wing or hit a diagonal? And third, thirdly, if you have to play the ball backwards, 
play it backwards, go and get it again so you can play it forward. So it's a sort of hierarchy of decision-making. And decision-making is crucial in high performance because you have to do it under mental pressure and physical fatigue. And to make these, the fastest decision you can make is 0.2 of a second. And that's a simple decision. That's not a complex decision. So why can one person make it quicker than another? Well, they can't. They actually just make it earlier through reading the play, anticipating the play. And that was the sound of a twentieth of a, a fifth of a second, which is the average, 1.2 of a second, the average time for rapid decision-making. And you're doing that constantly, making hundreds of decisions during a game. This, this uh, hunting territory comes from Dr. Istvan Gorgeny, who talks about this field of uh, the territory where, where one team is hunting down another. It's a very good book he, he's written. At this point, um, I'd like to uh, introduce Damien Farrell. Damien is a world expert on skill acquisition, often uh, requested to travel overseas to speak in a whole range of sports. Uh, was the head of the AIS Sports Science um, more recently is at Victorian University, is a professor there and works with the AFL. Um, do you want to make some comments in this area, Damien? Um, yeah, look, I, I, as we've talked about many times over the years, I think you know a game like football, obviously decision-making under pressure is a, it's what separates the best from the rest. So for me, the Wegner quote that you put up is really quite apt. Um, and I look at... I look at what FFA are trying to do there with their gig methodology, and I think that's a it's putting the game first. But like you mentioned earlier, I think it's all of this is on a continuum. So the best decision makers, generally speaking, have the best technical skills as well. They go hand in glove. So as a coach, it's a matter of using your creativity to set these mini games or situations that they're going to face so that they can get lots of repetitions and play the game, but equally are also getting the opportunity to use that, those technical skills in the right context. So I think it's, it's meshing those two things together. And sometimes it's, uh, you can leave, you can set the environment and let them play and let them work out the best, best ways to achieve the goal. And sometimes a little bit of guided instruction goes well also. 100%. So you'll set up a game and if they're not getting it, you need to step in at some point. You haven't got all day, um, particularly in the high-performance setting. You're obviously on limited training time. So uh, 100%, that's where it's not one or the other, but it's that combination of both that's most important. Glenn, did you want any questions to come in at the moment? Yeah, no, we could if, we, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Gary Cole, could you come on off mute, please, Mark? Burn, the... Um particularly in, in, at the how level, how, how important is it for you as a head coach to have control over uh, or a say in the budget, the salary cap and final decision-making in terms of recruiting players? Absolutely vital, guys. And uh, my last one of my later slides uh, explains the areas that the coach has got to get some control over. And... Um, I thought Graham Arnold explained that really well, especially when he went to Sydney. He said he, he went to Sydney and the CEO had a big say in who they were recruiting and the CEO controlled the budget. 
Whereas he said, well, look, it's really time for me to do that. And uh, so he got control of the budget. And usually you've got to get the control of the budget, not for one year, but for at least two, perhaps three years, because you're trying to not only sign the best players, but you're trying to retain them and allow for that in the budget down the track. Unfortunately, we're in a situation in our league where the bigger teams like Victory and Sydney are able to retain players better than most other clubs. I mean, Andrew Naboot left us um, after the first first half a season. He went overseas to to um, Euro Reds in Japan, and then after there, he went straight to Victory. He didn't come back to us. Another big loss was Riley McGree, who went to Melbourne City. So, having a big say in budget. And, uh, and recruiting is crucial for the coach, and I'll talk a little bit about that later on. Cheers, eh? Yeah. Uh, Phil, Phil Moss, you had a follow-up to Gary's question before I go to the other ones? Yeah, Ernie's just staying on recruitment. Uh, there's obviously a lot of discussion around foreigners in the A-League, um, less about the number of foreigners, more about do you have any guiding, non-negotiable guiding principles around recruitment of foreigners? Whatever rules are put in place, I think coaches have got to make the most of. And uh, so when I was at Victory, um, if if I had the money for five foreigners, as you were allowed, we had five foreigners. Um, the more I think about it, the more I think it's ridiculous that we've got that many foreigners. Um, when you think about that, there could be half of your outfield are foreign players, which doesn't give uh, the youngsters in this country a great opportunity. And this under having to have three under twenties in your squad is a bit ridiculous because they're just coming good and you've got to get rid of them and bring in three more under twenties. That should really be up to under twenty threes. So I think uh, three um, foreigners would be a good number, and um, and hopefully we'll develop because of that more strikers and goalkeepers because they're the two areas we keep uh, or the where where we keep having foreigners come in. And yet we've had some great goalkeepers like Mike Theopoulos and and Matty Ryan and, and Galekovic. There's some great goalkeepers coming through. And strikers, how many strikers in the A-League uh, were originally foreigners? Berisha became a, a show, which is a great move. But, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of five anymore. Ron Smith, could you come off and ask your two questions, please, Ron? Um, Ernie, you gave some examples earlier about um, quick transition and players getting the ball in their own half and playing the thing forward. Um, did you actually say to the players in games, look for that as a priority? Not only that, uh, Ron, I've actually took a, a, some advice via, I didn't speak to him uh, personally, but I was reading about Arsene Wenger actually timing attacks and saying, look, if you go, if you win the ball in the back third, I'll give you 15, 16 seconds to get a strike on target. If you went in the middle third, 10 seconds. If you went in the front third, five seconds. And so we'd set up uh, training sessions where when they win the ball, and, and I'd set it up so the players had numbers and numbers forward, but it was all about getting forward quickly before the opposition can defend. And when you play a, a, a good team like Sydney or Victory, they don't leave big numbers back. They take risks. That's why they're good teams and they go forward. So they're the ones you can really catch out. And yeah. when I talk about game plans, I'll show how we try to catch out teams like that by breaking forward quickly. Okay. Chairman. Do you have a follow-up, Ron? Um, no, just that I, from all the research I've done, um, you know, the majority of goals are scored with less than five passes 
and in the shortest amount of time. So everything you're saying can be backed up with research evidence right across the board, A-League, World Cups, you name it. And uh, I've got a video clip of Coutinho when he was at Liverpool. I'm just coming to who's... We talk about perception or scanning decision and pass, and I have looked at this clip so many times, and I cannot tell how he saw this pass because I can't see him looking forward and seeing... I'll I'll show you here. We'll we'll come to it, but it's a good point. If you can do... If you can get the ball forward in four passes, that's far better than 15, but sometimes you need 15 passes if, if the other team has got five in the back line and two defensive midfielders. Thanks, okay. Chris, one more. Uh, any, Chris Ola from Western Australia. Please, and welcome, Chris. If you could ask your question, please. Uh, yeah, thanks, Glenn. Um, hi, Ernie. Just wanted to check your point on the salary cap situation versus the recruiting and retaining the key players that you just mentioned earlier at the A-League point. It's been now about 15 seasons of the A-League. Would that be the right model or you think uh, some other flexibility would work better for the coaches, not for club chairman, CEO or board directors? I think we've outgrown the salary cap. I understand it's uh, using a salary cap in the first six, seven, eight years, but I think we've outgrown it and uh, it's really time for clubs to 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 decide on how much money they want to spend. And uh, or not want to spend because with the salary cap, you not only get a maximum, you get a minimum. So even teams that can't afford it have got to pay a lot of money for their, their players. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan now of the salary cap and um, I don't know how well it's been at tier two for, for a couple of seasons. But um, I think we need to move on from the salary cap. The other thing about the salary, some of the rules regarding salary cap is that one club cannot sell a player to another club in the A-League. So if you've got a good player, everyone wants to see him stay in the A-League, you want to make money in, within the country, then I think you should be able to transfer that player to another player in the A-League. We could do it in the old NSL. I bought Damien Mori for $14,000 and got a bargain, I reckon. He was a good right back that I turned into a striker. But uh, I know there's a lot more money involved in the game now, but I don't think you should sell players overseas so much when they could they'd be happy to stay in this country. Uh, if someone was prepared to pay some money for what's what's the exciting part this this is why I like playing the way I like playing what excites the crowd the most and you'll hear in some of the videos I'm going to play how the crowd that comes to a crescendo it's near where the goals are so front third playing build up plays the exciting part of the game of course we love to see great tackling and and uh, great passing from the back but Front third play is what it's all about. Set up passes, that, that tremendous assist that lays the, the ball on a plate for the striker to finish off and goals. So this is the reason why I love attacking football. And uh, it's also the reason why you know it's easy to do in our game. Because if you look at other games, rugby league and rugby union, they've got to pass the ball backwards unless they're kicking, which is high risk. But they, they can't, they can't knock the ball forward quickly. They've got to pass the ball backwards, which is a challenge for their coach. They're both great games, don't get me wrong, but to, to progress and invade isn't easy. Netball, you're only allowed two goal scorers and players are restricted to certain areas. And basketball is very much zonal play, park the bus, there's no transition, it just goes from one shot to the other shot, except in the States where they said zonal play is too negative, let's make sure everyone plays man-to-man, open up the game a lot more. 
Field hockey, there's no offside. And so it's hard to find space in behind defenders. So another tough game to, to create good goal-scoring chances. They thought that by getting rid of the offside, they'd score more goals. Now, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't changed very much. But it's still a fantastic game. It's just different. AFL, to me, there's a reason why a lot of people, especially in this town in Melbourne, love AFL football because of the fast forward play, lots of goals. The goals are huge. You can't miss them. Even if you miss, you get a point. They give you a point. Say, well done. You Try again. You might get a goal down the middle. There's no crossbar, no goalkeeper. Go for it, son. In football, we can play forward passes. Anyone can score. We've got transition through the front. In middle thirds, we've got set-up passes that are exciting. We've got goal-scorer opportunities where anyone can score. So why not play rapid end-to-end football that everyone will enjoy and the best team wins? Preparing for matches, I was very big on playing 11v11 at some stage at the end of the week. So you would, you would look at who you're playing against, you do some analysis on them, um, set up maybe 7v7, 8v8 and finish up with either 10v10 or 11v11. A lot of the time I'd play 10v10 so that our centre-backs get used to doing a lot of work on their own without a partner and full-backs covering them. Um, in one match against um, uh, the Mariners, we, we thought we'll overload the midfield. So we looked to create a three-on-two in the midfield as often as possible and get either with Jimmy Petrados up front, pulling away the defensive midfielder, getting Riley McGree to push really forward into a number 10 position, or if he stayed back, let Steve Ugarkovic go. And up front, I'm happy just to create three-on-three, two-on-two, or one-on-one, because I, I, you have to back your strikers in these situations if they make the right runs or they can dribble. So, the second season... Uh, I was at uh, Newcastle. We um, we lost a few players. Not only did we lose a few players uh, like McGree and Naboot, but um, Joey Champness was injured for 20 weeks and and uh, Jason Hoffman was injured. And Jason was one of these all-round players who played several positions. And what we discovered was we had lots of shots, but we weren't scoring goals. And I'm really big on getting into the penalty box, getting numbers in the penalty box, preferably four, and so that whoever receives the ball has got a one or two touch finished in that scoring zone. And that's a crucial part. So what we did was three quarters of the way through the season, we analysed every shot on target. Chris Bowling did this, who's very good as a goalkeeping coach and also as a video person. So we analysed where all the shots came from. And nowadays with the modern analysis software that you can purchase, the information you can get about team play is just enormous, whether it be video clips or numbers or positional type things like this. And, uh, and the shots on target, we were only scoring in this zone here. So what we said to the players, listen, if you've got an option to pass to someone in that central area of the penalty box, rather than shoot from distance, Let's see if we can hit the player in the penalty box. And the opposition, and five opposition goalkeepers, uh, one man of the match against us because we were shooting from distance. The last four or five games, we actually won three out of the last four games uh, of that second season. 
and that's when also Champness came back and uh, Jason Hoffman came back and we got the hang of scoring from the right areas. What is failure? Failure is, again, as I said, a learning situation and you have to embrace failure because most of the things that happen on the field are mistakes. It's a learning situation where you have to manage the problems associated with mistakes and uh, there's one quote I found, the greatest mistake you can make in life is to continually fearing you'll make one. Just going to specific game plans now, we talked earlier about playing against uh, manners and overloading the midfield. One little session that we'd use as a warm-up, uh, Clayton Zane was very good on these sort of sessions at uh, Newcastle, Aaron Healy at Victory, and Chris Greenacre at Phoenix. I think I've mentioned them all now. <laughs> Um, just setting up the mannequins and say, look, this is their formation and defence. This is how the opposition play. Let's uh, let's go through a range of unopposed passing and movement, but we'll stick in two young lads uh, as defenders. So those two are live. The goalkeeper's live. And then you can add to this session by adding in more midfielders that are live and see if we can get the movement in the round the way we want to play. Transfer that to a, a, a more competitive game. And uh, and we looked at, I think we were playing in this game against Roar, and we looked at Champness coming inside and Georgievsky getting outside as much as possible. And sometimes you use smaller areas, larger areas. You use the B team to play the way the opposition played. One game against Victory, which I'll show you, we, we thought we were really Milligan's clever in midfield. We'll close down Milligan quickly, smother the midfield and see if we can break forward because their numbers that they commit forward gives, them, gives us a chance to counter-attack. I'm not going to really speak much on, I'm just going to mention this briefly on uh, sports science and strength and conditioning and physical preparation. Chris Smith, we had at the Jets, who was outstanding um, in this area. Uh, Lee Spence at Phoenix, but... What you could, these guys do in sports science and preparation, and I've got a background in physical education and sports science, but they just leave me for dead. So the preparation and work and information that's delivered is first class. Work rates of the players, distances are covered, distance at speed, change of direction, distance over 20Ks, total distance, etc. And being competitive animals, players love this sort of information. So we deliver it at training, at training as well. Um, so and this was a Lee Spence graph where players were given targets. This is meters per minute, the, 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 the sprint. And this is intensity levels, but meters per minute. And, um, and ideally, these players should be getting towards the top right-hand corner of each box. And boy, was, did that cause some trouble at training. I think often they would find an excuse that the... The, the GPS systems weren't working or the watch was broken, but we had a great time with it. But one thing you can learn from this sort of feedback is some strategic stuff. And Chris Smith found this in a pre-season game against Aurora, that after we conceded a goal, we didn't just drop our head for five minutes. It was more like 17 minutes. Our work rate dropped enormously. Now, that's, that's a good piece of feedback in making the players aware that they probably weren't aware because I talked to them about it. They had no idea because this is, this is their work rate, these uh, vertical lines um, and the, 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 their meters per minute they're covering. If, they, if they're running on average 125 meters per minute for 90 odd minutes of the game, 
then they're doing really well. If they're on for a short time, some of them are up around 135 meters per minute. But they all dropped off. The average dropped off after after a goal was scored against. So we worked on goal against, let's see if we can step up our work rate. It's a little thing, but everything helps strategically. Second last video, um, I've got to show something of when I coached Victory because I've picked on him a little bit. <laughs> um, in my uh, third season, or fourth season, um, 2008, 2009 at, at, at Victory, we'd won the preseason cup and we had a good run for the first uh, 13 rounds. And then I lost three games in a row. And uh, the rumor was a very strong rumor that if I lost this game, the fourth game and fourth loss in a row, my job was ended and it's finished. And this is one of those moments where as a coach, you just you wonder what it's all about and what you're doing and why you're there. But um, the, um, this, this was against, of all clubs, uh, a Cosmina coach, Sydney, so you always knew it was going to be a tough game when John Cosmina's involved. Good coach and very passionate. And, um, and this was at Dockland Stadium in front of 35,000 people, 30,000 victory fans. Melbourne victory with three losses on the trot. They've never lost four in a row. Sydney FC under all sorts of scrutiny after just one win in seven matches, two wins in 11. And it's becoming decision time in terms of the season for both of these sides. Cole! Seven Cole! Unbelievable start for Sydney FC! So, a game I had to win, 30 seconds into the game, we're down 1-0. Three minutes, five seconds, and we're down 2-0. So there's 30,000 victory supporters not very happy with me. And I noticed, apart from Gary Cole, most of the rest of the staff on the bench had moved to the right slightly. And Gary Cole was at the stage giving me some counselling, and he was the only one that was there. And I'll never forget it, you useless buggers, the rest of you. But 2-0 down. It was released from the flare, the commentary end was... The commentators are giving me it as they should, uh, Andy Harper and my good friend, the late Mike Cockrell. But boy, was it difficult to take. Already smoking before the game started, and they'll be on fire after this start. Brendan Gann, let's rip! Five metres outside the penalty area. Away he goes, away she goes. Sydney, two to the good. Four minutes gone. Incredible start. Maybe at this stage, uh, and all these things are the white noise that's going through my head, all the things I thought had imparted, all the things that uh, commentators and journalists write about, and, uh, and there's a lot happening, but nothing happening in my head at this moment in time. And I thought at this stage it might be worth talking, bringing in uh, Neil Craig. Oh, Cosy, you're here. Sorry about that, Cosy. <laughs> I'll maybe get a comment from you in a minute, but uh, yeah, a late, uh, it was a very competitive game. But uh, Neil Craig, who is uh, a sports scientist, 
as well as a, an elite coach who's worked at the highest level in the AFL with uh, Adelaide and Melbourne. And more recently, Neil's been away with, uh, with uh, Eddie Jones with the English rugby team and, um, and got to the final of the World Rugby Cup. So, Neil, would, would you like to make any comments of, you know, what a coach, what goes through the mind of a coach at this stage? A <laughs> uh, bit of hope uh, is handy, Eddie. But it's, I mean, from a generic um, uh, and a fairly general comment about uh, the role that you're talking about, you know, the head coach, um, you know, for the, for the people who are listening and, and watching this presentation, it's, once again, it just, hit, just hits home to me um, uh, the multi-skill set that you require to be able to do the job. Like it's a difficult job. It's a complex job and it's a difficult job. I mean, you've spoken about recruiting. You've spoken about uh, don't be afraid to bring in big personalities. And if you do that, like you've got to be able to manage those players um, within the team, you know, and, and the dynamics of the team. Uh, you've spoken about a particular way you want to play, so you need to have a thought process. But then you've got to know how to coach that and how to, be able to get the information from what in your head into the player's head so to be able to create those mental models. Um, you've spoken about the capacity to handle adversity, which is what, what you're facing just at the moment, you know, this acute adversity that there's this uh, probably feeling that if you don't win this game, like you're not going to be coaching next week. So, uh, you know, an assessment that you lose this game, you can't coach. If you, if you, if you win it, you can coach. Like that's how fickle it can be. Um, so, uh, you know, the, just, you know, it's, 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 it's no wonder, Ernie, you know, that seven-year phenomenon that you spoke about, yeah. um, it takes you. It takes a long time to be able to generate and get the skill set, you know, for a, for a person that goes into the job first time. How long did you? How long did it take for you to feel comfortable in your own skin about you knew what you're doing? I coached in the old. Uh, first of all, I coached at state league level, but that was more about keeping boys fit and just having a bit of fun. But I coached in the old NSL two clubs. And uh, one club, Preston, I inherited at the end of the season after they lost three, two or three games. Billy Murray was a terrific coach and handed me a great team. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but we finished second top of the league. Uh, I got sacked uh, eight games into the next season. And, um, and then Sunshine, George Cross, a similar situation. A lot of young players, because they had no money, we had a bit of success, but I really did feel that I didn't know the job. And I'd done all the coaching courses. Um, and I was a teacher, and I think being a teacher helps. But uh, working at the Victorian Institute of Sport, you know, talking to athletics coaches, cricket coaches, Jim Irvin, the, the hockey coach, I just, I just learned a lot from those coaches. And I learned working with elite youngsters um, where it was all about preparing them for to go into the AIS or to, to play for the Australian under-17 or under-20 teams. I learned a lot more there than I did in any coaching course because I could speak with the, the people I was around. And then when I went over and did the pro licence in Europe, I felt, felt more and more prepared. But that doesn't mean that still when everything's going wrong, you, you, you reflect on what you've done and you go, oh, I made a mistake there, and I made a mistake. And if you say it too much, you'll start believing it. So you, you definitely go through these phases where you 
you question yourself and the decisions you've made and the more than the people around about you. Yeah. It's interesting you spoke about um, your capacity to learn early and uh, the informal learning process, you know, versus um, the football certificates that all sports have got. Um, I think two great qualities of the best coaches I've been involved um, over my journey is that they have a humility about them. In other words, an understanding or a, a feeling that they don't know it all and in actual fact it makes them really uncomfortable, that they're continually uncomfortable because they feel like they just they need to to uh, to get better information and they have this real curiosity. Um, so they're, they're happy to go anywhere and ask questions, uh, which once again dovetails into the humility factor, not afraid to actually to, uh, you know, the vulnerabilities. I don't, I don't know how to do this. I need to get better at doing it and I have a responsibility to go and do it. Uh, and find out. So they're great qualities, once again, for your listeners and your viewers. Um, get out and talk to those coaches uh, in your own sport. Get out in different sports so you get a different perspective, you know, a different coaching lens because you can see by the slide that's on the uh, monitor at the moment, uh, they're all skill sets that you need. Um, and that's why it's such a difficult, difficult job. So, you, you, Neil, you've been working with Eddie Jones uh, as the high performance manager of the English rugby team. H have you learned from Eddie, even though it's a different sport? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's some special qualities about. I mean, Eddie's a highly experienced international level coach, coached in now four World Cups. Um, but his uh, his his capacity to think, only like to, and I've I've written down. Think on my pad here, you know, when you're talking about uh, designing training, the way you want to play and, and recruiting. So you got you need this capacity to think as a coach. I know it sounds simple, but uh, to think things through, to bounce ideas off of each other. Eddie's got a great capacity to think. He's highly curious. Uh, he's paranoid about uh, about ways to do things better all the time. How do we do it better tomorrow? Or how do we dismantle our offence to make it better going forward? Uh, his attention to detail, um, uh, fiercely competitive. Um, so all the things that you've spoken about. Um, and, he's, and he's been able to survive the coaching world, which is a, which is a difficult world. So, um, and the other thing that, uh, that's been really fantastic for me to work in that program is uh, the professional development that I've been exposed to not only working with Eddie, but the, the quality of coaches that come through that program, Ernie. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Ferguson. I remember uh, last year we spent a whole day with Alex Ferguson in a coaching room just talking about coaching. Like, I, uh, that was free of charge for me. I happened to be in the environment. That but would have been a fantastic experience. Whereas you, not only do you get to talk about the actual coaching aspect and you hear the stories, I mean, he uh, loves his red wine, he's got horse racing, whatever. So, But he's a great storyteller. Um, so you might ask him about uh, how do you handle the big personalities? And he'll say, let me tell you a story about a big personality. How do you handle adversity and criticism? He said, let me tell you a story about criticism, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, highly experienced. But the professional development, once again, it's a learning environment. You're continually looking for ways to do things better. Uh, I think we're on the same page there. Thank you for that, Neil. Um, well, I push on. Uh, Glenn, or do you want me to? Um... I'll just ask you a few more questions while you're there, Ernie. Okay, go on. Um, just from uh, 
attendees who can't speak for themselves. Um, from uh, Vincenzo, how much analysis did you use during your time in the A-League in terms of opposition and your own team for performance reviews? Um, a great deal of time. In fact, uh, most of the time we would be doing that. Coaching on field is pretty easy and you can only do so much with the players without overdoing it. But I spent a lot of time. I would I would knock off work. Uh, sorry, I'd leave the office or the pitch around about 2 o'clock-ish and then I'd go home, have a break, and then I'd spend a couple of hours most days and, and the other staff as well and we'd come up with how the opposition played that we were about to play. Uh, we'd, Every um, If we played on a Saturday, the Monday session would have a video review session and look at what we did well and what we didn't do so well and where we might have been caught out or where we did where we created good chances. So that would be on the Monday. On the Thursday for a game, maybe on the Saturday, we would have a preview session on the next team that we're going to play against, how we're going to play. But we'd already started implementing that on the on the Monday, or that was a fairly light session, on the Tuesday session. So you start at the beginning of the week, but you go through it on videos, why you why we've got a very specific game plan. So you have an overall strategy, but you have a game plan for each individual team. Uh, you're looking at their attacking formation, their defensive structure, and how you can pick holes in it. So that, that started right after the game. The next day, we'd all be analysing uh, how we performed and, and being able to look at the next... Uh, match and how we'd implement our game plan specifically for that next game. Yeah. From Sebas, uh, what's your view in having left foot players in the balance of your best 11? Uh, either a left back, center, left central defender or left attacker? Do you have this as your recruiting strategy? Sorry, uh, whether I had left footers or not? Yeah, you're looking to recruit left footers to, to balance your best 11. Um, I was always looking for just the best players and uh, you, you could get some players that would play, like Georgeski could play left back or right back. Uh, Champness was right footer, but he used his left foot really well. I liked him on the left though because he'd come in and shoot with his right. Andrew Naboot uh, is the same. He he liked being on the left, come in on his right, so one balanced the other and sometimes we'd have to chase them, change them over. Um, uh, I think... Uh, um, I always, uh, Topor Stanley's a left-footed centre-back, so he went well with the captain, Nigel Bogard, on the right-hand side. But sometimes we used to have Lachlan Jackson, who was a left-footer, play on the right-hand side. So it's just a case of whether they're comfortable or not. There's no doubt you've got to have two or three good left-footers in your team. Ryland McGree was one of the best. Uh, Phil, would you just want to come off mute and ask you a question regarding institutes versus academies? Sure. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, yeah, and just as an, uh, as an institute coach earlier in your career, what's your take on the big debate around uh, um, state institutes, AIS, versus the A-League Academy structure that we've had? Well, there's arguments both ways, but uh, I, I was part of uh, the institute programs that I thought overall the Institute of Sport, the Victorian Institute, the New South Wales Institute of Sport, uh, Queensland Academy, the AIS, South Australian Institute, Western Australian Institute, and we all had targeted age groups. I used to bring players in at 13, 14, try and get them ready for the 17s. If they missed that or they were good enough, they stayed on for the 20s. And we fed into Ronnie. Ronnie's program at the AIS and you just have to look at the players that we prepared and 
uh, all the institutes did a great job. And the AIS at that time was ideal. I don't know if it, it would be as good now. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to go through schools because the Australian schools are being to adopt the American sort of system of, of having specialist programs for, for athletes in, of a particular sport. My old school here, I taught at Morris High School when I first arrived. Now they've got a brand new school and they've they merged with, uh, I think, in the uh, Cricket Association and they have got the best cricket facilities you've ever seen. They've also got a brand new soccer pitch and uh, they've, they've, they've brought in um, uh, a top-level AFL football coach, Guy McKenna, to run their football programme. And it's not just the school, but the, the amateurs uh, in the area. So maybe there's an opportunity to do it a little bit more cheaply through schools, but that's an area that has to be looked at. But the institute system, I was amazed that it was ever uh, culled and, and dropped. And someone said it was because of the cost. Well, the cost was relatively cheap when you look at it over overall. But I don't know if that same system can be implemented nowadays. From, uh, from Andrew Robinson, Ernie, how would you see a second division league working with promotion and relegation uh, in order to give more youngsters a chance? Definitely has to happen at some stage, uh, second division. Um, the trouble is uh, owners pay a massive sum of money for clubs, anything from 10 to $20 million to buy a club, set up the facilities, the infrastructure and the costs associated with that. And they're out of pocket every year, apart from maybe victory in they'll probably be out of pocket big time this year. So it's very hard to tell a club currently in the A-League, you're no longer in the A-League, we're going to bring in another club that might not have the facilities and the finances. So once they sort out the financial side of thing and the thing and the logistics of it and the venues, etc., definitely has to happen. It's just a case of when and how we go about doing that. Uh, John Crawley, could you ask your question, please? Hi, Eddie. Uh, yep. Mate, um... You've spoken a lot about players and formation and different things. I'm going to give you the, uh, the goal-kicking question. But they, um, strikers win matches. The goalkeepers, I believe, win your championships um, and defenders, I guess, good defences. Uh, do you agree with that? And how important is it, do you think, to have a top-class goalkeeper um, in your squad? Absolutely crucial, John. Uh, what I, was, I didn't want to cover every single aspect of the game. There's far too much to talk about, but uh, I'm glad you asked the question. I think if you have to have a top goalkeeper. It's uh, secondary only to goal scorers because a uh, bad goalkeeper, bad team. doesn't matter how good the other 10 are. You've got a bad goalkeeper, you've got a bad team. And it's no fluke that the best teams in the world have the best goalkeepers in the world. So it's a crucial aspect. I didn't want to downplay defenders, but there's no doubt about how quality defenders. I just think that in the league at the moment, it's all about goal scorers and strikers. And um, there's a dearth of, of, of all types of players. And I think the more youngsters coming through, the better. I've always been lucky. I had uh, Frank Talia at uh, the VIS. Uh, I had um, the first year at Victory, I had both Eugene Galekovic, who I brought from the VIS, and uh, Theo uh, um, uh, Theoklatos. And, uh, and I had to let, uh, because Eugene was such a good goalkeeper, I had to let him go to Adelaide, but we had Mike Theoklatos, and he was a fantastic goalkeeper. So when you lose a goalkeeper, you really struggle. Um, who was the boy that, that we had at the victory um, who went on to uh, Borussia Dortmund? He went straight from victory playing virtually only a season 
uh, Mitch Langerak, and yeah, and he went straight onto the bench. Borussia Dortmund. I thought he was wasted sitting on the bench, and he really should have got loaned out. But I think he made a lot of money, and they were very successful. So, so yes, goalkeepers are crucial, John. No doubt about it. Thanks, mate. What I was going to say at this point is that. I've, and Neil's talked about it as well, that I think you've got to have absolute belief in your expertise. Some call it confidence, whatever. I think that a coach has got to have real belief in his ability and convince the players likewise for them to have belief in their ability. And uh, you're judged during 95 minutes of trauma and people think you're a certain type of character because you've got a miserable face on but there's a lot we go through and we get picked on for whatever we do. But I think uh, belief in your ability is crucial at this stage when things are really tough. And as Winston Churchill says, success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. I mean, look at Ranieri. He won an unbelievable championship and got sacked not long afterwards. Mourinho was on the top and then he drops down and he's back again. Klopp has been, I don't think he's ever been sacked. He's just been amazing. So is Guardiola. Ferguson speaks for himself. So it's, it's people that have real belief in themselves and understand that they're going to fail at some stage, but they want to get back on the horse and go again. And uh, as I used to say to the players, if you don't dare to take risks, you're not going to go anywhere, boys. So this is this is going back to the old uh, game against Melbourne Sydney. Cosy, who's watching this, uh, was coaching Sydney. It was a tough match. They're up two 0 and um, this is uh, clips of the remainder of the game. It's going to be a free kick for Melbourne victory to be taken by Hernandez. Played short. Thompson hasn't been picked up, and Archie Thompson exacts a full price for Sydney FC's sloppy defending. The victory game. Bowbridge conceding a free kick. They were very slow in reforming. Carlos Hernandez sprung the trap. Thompson with one touch to control and then the shot on the turnover. Final change. Nicky Ward on for Evan Berger so he's emptied the bench. Here come the victory.
such a fickle game. So the 30,000 that were abusing me in the first half suddenly became my friends and I was a hero again for a short period of time. It doesn't last long. And this is where, as a coach, you, you're best lying. So you, you lie to the press, you lie to the media, because uh, after the game in the media conference, they say, what did you do at halftime? What did you tell them? What, what changes did you make, etc." And uh, all I did was lie and say, oh, I did this, and I'd switch him there, and I'd drop back. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I didn't actually do anything at halftime other than give them that what I thought was belief in their skills and ability because it was such an unusual game. The first three minutes, two boys hit pigeonhole perfect shots in the top one in the top left-hand corner and the second one in the top right-hand corner. You can't do anything about that. The game hadn't even got started and we're down 2-0, but I felt as though we had the better team overall. And if we'd got one, we'd come back from there. And we got one through Archie, who's just actually half a sniff at goals and he's always going to score. So Archie scored. Second half, we just got stronger and stronger. And um, uh, I felt bad for Cozzy because Cozzy always produced a tough and very competitive team. Um, but uh, we, we took a win there. And um, Ne Fabiano had been practicing that victory celebration dance for the whole season and he hardly had a game. Never scored a goal and he scored the goal at the right time. So he was a hero when we got rid of him at the end of the year. Um, just some points about areas of control and management essential for the coach to survive. And uh, and it's I, I'm very big on empathising with the players. From the point of view, you look at every situation, which is you know a difficult situation to sort out, look at it from their side as well. And you have to gain their trust and respect through your behaviour and knowledge and attitude, not from discipline but there's always a time for discipline. And the coach has got to learn it's not about the coach. It's really about the players. It's about the fans and the, the supporters that come along week in, week out. Uh, second thing is uh, always trying to gain control and management of the player budget, which I mentioned earlier, the first two or three years in advance. And hopefully you've got a budget where you can hold on to the better players so you can recruit and get better and better rather than losing your good players every year to the bigger clubs or overseas. And final say on who you recruit, who you release, um, your decision on the selection of your support team is crucial. I've had some great people that I've worked with and you can't achieve anything on your own. You really are working in a team off the field as well. And everyone in the office, they all play a very important role. I think you've got to demand quality training facilities. And believe me, I've had some tough areas that I've worked in, whether it was at the VIS or the state team, the state level. But And uh, Phoenix actually moved to the new facilities after I left the, the, the team. But you've got to have training facilities because although you're judged on the weekend during a 1995-minute episode, it's all about all the training, everything, all the preparation, everything is it training? You've got to have good training facilities or you get no chance. And another little coaching tip is try not to reach the grand final in your first year because it's all usually downhill after that. And now your best players get sold or moved on. So, you know, your best finishing sixth just in the finals in your first year. So your second year, you can build on that in the third year, hopefully go for the grand final. You don't want any interference from the people above. Managing up is a real skill. Um, and trust me that everyone's your best friend when you're doing well or you're new 
you don't find out who your real friends are and who, where your real supporters are until you're under pressure. And that's a really interesting thing. And I misjudge people so many times. I think this guy is 100% behind me and that makes me feel good. And I'll make sure the players feel good because they know I'm behind them and I think they're good players and a good team together. And then the pressure's on and you see cracks and crevices occur and someone always surprises you and you go, I can't believe he's, that guy's like that. This one I always failed. Uh, you should smile on the camera when things go well. Don't smile at the wrong times. I always failed in, failed in that area, but um, I, I'm, I'm working on it. I've been practicing smiling. And even though you've got the best intentions, sometimes things just get away from you for no reason other than something really stupid. And uh, I'd like to speak to Gary Cole at this stage. Um, Gaz, are you around? I am, Because Gaz is one of these people that's quietly in the background, doesn't push himself forward. He certainly didn't at Victory, but I'm pretty sure he kept me in the job. How, do you, how did you do what you do and what sort of situations did you deal with that you didn't tell me about at Victory? Uh, well, well, I think Victory was really, really interesting because we, firstly, we built it from the ground up. So I was the first full-time employee. I think you were the third full-time employee. We... We didn't have an office. We had borrowed phones and laptops. We interviewed people in cafe, cafe shops and wine bars. We, we became very good at that, as I recall. Um, we did. One of the blessings I think that most coaches don't have is, is that because it was brand new, we had a chairman and a board that really knew nothing about football. That was and a good so, thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was. I think we had that rare opportunity where they they didn't, for, it, it took Jeff Lord, you know, probably a season or maybe till we, 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 in the second year we won the championship before all of a sudden he, he found his expertise and then started to have opinions and the board started to have more opinions about football decisions. So I think firstly we were blessed that for, a, I can't remember exactly, but a year or so we were, um, you know, we did a good, we both did a good job at managing that, but they really didn't try and have influence what we were doing. Um, they might have thought about sacking the pair of us at the end of the first season, <laughs> but they couldn't afford to do that. So that was a blessing as well. Yeah, um, no. I, I think um, one of the, because of the way victory was structured and that football manager position was there, which, and you and I got on, have always got on great, uh, even though you sacked me, I, I think you... Um, Gave me the boot at Preston when I was a player and finished my career, but you know, I, didn't, I, I did not do that. I did not. Oh, say oh, sorry, it was Billy Murray. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, I think we worked really, really well, and I think in the position of football manager, I was able to protect you a bit from the board, and I could talk at the board meeting. So, don't, don't get me wrong. You you did a fantastic job at managing up, managing me, managing the CEO, and then managing the board and the chairman where there are varying expectations at different times. Um, but the opportunity when the footy manager or whatever you're going to call that position and the coach do work well together is you, you and I, I'd like to think it was a great level of trust there, I can talk for you in a board meeting about what we're doing, the injuries, the, what's going on, so that you don't need to have those conversations all of the time. I, 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 I certainly think you underrate your position. I think you're a crucial, uh, you play a cr crucial role for a coach 
And um, I could, you were also, sorry, you're not only the operations manager, but you're also a coach and an accountant. So you handled the budget really well. And, uh, but you, I got you to sit on the bench because you're a coach and a very good striker. I think you played 40 odd times for Australia. So I, I think that you become a person that plays your role as a crucial person to assist the coach. Neil Craig and I were talking about it earlier that, it's just having the good good people between you, especially between you and the board, is is just so important. It can you can sol- solve issues without it becoming a, because coaches in the moment of passion and when things are going well or not going so well, it's it, it's not the good time to talk to the coach. I think you got a couple of phone calls. I won't mention who by you got a couple of phone calls at halftime games. <laughs> We won't talk about that, but no doubt that you kept a couple of people away from me that I would love to have strangled. Anyway, we might might try and uh, get through as many of these questions as we can. Um, So from Stewie McLaren, uh, welcome, Stewie. In regards to implicit and explicit learning, what are the key factors in deciding what types of practices and when to use them? That's a big question, lots of answers. Um, Implicit learning is really learning by trial and error on your own and discovering the right way to do things and what works for you and uh, how to solve issues, getting the ball behind defenders or whatever. Um, and I think at the elite level, you, you have to do a lot of that because it comes becomes repetitive and you realise in a whole different... If you can, I had a session where it was five against four and you keep almost like a basketball session, you changed over half court. And uh, you're just continually trying to get the ball in behind defenders and working out the best way to do that, putting the right, having the right accuracy on the pass, the right weighting behind the pass and, and finding better ways to do it and getting the timing right because you start to make eye contact with the defender and the, the midfielder and the striker, the set-up pass. Explicit learning, sometimes one-on-one, pulling someone aside and saying, look, if you make these type of runs, you get away from the ball and then you come in late, you know, and you, you explain things more in a, in a, in a situation um, where you're just one-on-one or one-on-two, pull the two fullbacks aside. But I, I would also do explicit, uh, uh, use explicit learning, give explanations of to why we're doing things, and then lots of repetition because the more you talk, the less you'll you play and learn from playing so i don't know if that is a good answer or not but um i'm big on constraints led stuff uh which is implicit and i'm also big on making sure i explain things properly to someone that's not too sure what we're trying to get at uh from sven uh what's the breakdown in setting up how you want to play compared to how you want to counter your opposition Well, I think you always play the the way you want to play. Um, That's first and foremost, your attacking formation. And uh, even at uh, Newcastle in the first year, we scored something like 57 goals, which was a club record. And so you can't do that if you're worried about the opposition too much. You're not, you're not, uh, you know, taking risks. Who dares wins? So I very much like to have very attacking minded players that are committed to scoring goals and focus on them getting the ball to them and then uh, and then having a structure to win the ball back again but the focus on how you play is crucial and that's you choose your players based on that uh, from Justin second division or a full-time national youth competition 
Oh, it might start off as a youth competition. Um, in uh, England, the Premier League went from an under-20 reserve team combination of youth team and so many senior players being allowed to play to the moving the age group from under-20 to under-23. And I think this second division has got to have a large number of younger players, but not below the age of 20, below the age of 23. Uh, some people develop later with certain number of overage players, so a bit of combination of both. Uh, a similar question from Nick Carter, but I'll get Heather, Heather Garriock to ask the question if you could, Heather. Ernie, uh, thanks for the presentation. It's been really inspiring. It would have been great for you to coach the tours back in the day when you did get the job for five minutes in, uh, I think it was around uh, early 2000s. That's another uh, story. We won't go into that story. That's a long story. That's a good I'd, one. I'd love to hear it. Um, you've done so much for football and um, coached in the A-League uh, what are your aspirations in football, given you've done so much? And how do you think you can contribute to the game in Australia, especially given the period that we're going through at the moment? Um, there's quite a a large reset going on. What are your thoughts? Well, I think we're moving in the right direction um, with with a football person like James Johnson in charge and, uh, and having advice from some top-level players and Ronnie Smith and Bosnich and these guys getting involved as well through the starting 11 and Marco Bresciano and, these, and the, the subcommittee. So we're heading in the right direction. I don't know um, about my future. I've, I've really enjoyed what I've done. I'd like to stay involved in some way and my involvement is really about trying to help others, whether it be coaches or players. And so I don't know about my future, but I always feel that every time you get sacked or something even better comes up, I always believe in silver linings. I'm just looking for it at the moment. And by the way, did you finish that glass of gin? Yeah, I'm onto a glass of red wine now, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on my wife's just giving me a glass of Chardonnay. No, you deserve it. It's been a fantastic presentation. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks, Heather. Uh, question from on the text from uh, Puri Anabi up in Brisbane, uh, Ernie. How do you uh, analyse the leadership qualities of your players? I, I think uh, the more you coach, the more you understand people and um, the motivations that people have. And uh, I haven't always got it right, but I usually get it right. And uh, I used to have actually set up a, a formal senior group of players, but I've gone more recently to more informal group of players and just having a word in their ear every now and again, a chat and you know, Nigel Bogart was a great leader. I just said to Nigel, got a bit of an issue there. Do you think you can solve it or do you want me to go in with a big, big stick? And he'd go, no, I think I can handle that. And uh, and there's so many good people in the game. I mean, Topper Stanley's been around for a long time. Ben Kantorowski's got a great sense of humour. So you just get a good combination of, of, of people together and it works. And... Uh, I just think I'm pretty good at assessing people, but I get it wrong sometimes when I'm under pressure and I'm looking for from support from above and sometimes it doesn't come and I get so disappointed by it. Uh, last question from Ron, if you want to come off, Ron, um, to ask you a question about numbers in the box. Um, great stuff, Ernie. Really loved it. Uh, you mentioned a few times early on about getting four players in the box. Have you had a preferred sort of playing style so that or do you want your strikers to be in there more than anybody else? Or what's your what's your feeling on that? I got it from Alec Ferguson watching uh, him giving a talk. And he talked about four, he wants four strikers in the box. He doesn't care who they are, fullbacks, midfielders, central strikers. 
So getting four in the box gives you your best opportunity to score and getting the ball in there and delivering early. Um, I, I won, uh, we won the first grand final 6-0 with uh, a 4-3-3 type formation. Um, this, everyone thinks that I'm all out attack, but the, when you lose a couple of key players, you have to change slightly depending on who you recruit. And the second grand final I, I, we won was uh, a 3-4-3 formation. And, uh, and that was, we only we won 6-0 the first one, but only 1-0 the second one, but it's still a win. So I think, and when I was, most of the time at Victory, I played with two nines. Usually it was Daniel Sop and Archie Thompson with, with uh, either Fred or Hernandez in behind. Um, when, uh, I firstly, when Danny also left, I think we brought in Robbie Cruz there. So I, I liked two, two central strikers, but I still liked the fullbacks getting forward and the midfielders getting forward. So it's hard to say what the formation was, but numbers in the box to me are what it's all about and getting the ball in there quickly. It's this simple, really. Thanks, mate. Uh, last question, Ernie, and then we need to we need to uh, uh, conclude the presentation. Ian Green, are you still there, mate? If you can come off your mic to ask. Yeah, still here. Great to have you on board, Ernie. Fantastic presentation. From your time, Ernie, at at Preston, then the VIS, and then on to Victory and beyond. How have you changed your strategy with regards to your halftime team talks? You, you, you mentioned about not talking at that Sydney game, but. What have you done to change the way that you approach halftime? Well, it's not that I, I didn't talk against Sydney in the Sydney game. It was more it was it was more just geeing the boys up and getting them to believe in themselves, as some would call that confidence. I hate using that word because it's sort of abstract and airy fairy. I was just talking to boys what they're doing, what they're doing well, and to keep doing it. Um, how have uh, halftime? <laughs> Well, first of all, the first 10 years I had coaching, I made every mistake you could possibly make in spades. And everything you shouldn't do, I did. So I was lucky that I kept getting another opportunity. And um, I have to say, early on, I was very negative. I picked on people. I used bad language, which is unusual for a Scottish person. But I used bad language a fair bit. I remember pressing, giving a few, Ronnie Campbell and a few guys a bit of a blast. But... Sometimes they respond, but you can't use it very often. I think overall I've become a bit more calmer. Although Gary Cole could probably tell you the answer to this. Uh, I'm a bit calmer, a bit more methodical, and a lot more positive. I just always see the optimistic outlook. And, um, and uh, I think most people uh, do that as they get older. I'd hate to become a cranky old bugger. And my face tells everyone I'm cranky, but I'm not. I'm actually a nice, lovely person. <laughs> thanks Ernie cheers and if I could call on Phil just to say thanks on our behalf yeah thanks Glenn um, I'll just wrap quickly uh, I just want to thank you Ernie um, personally for taking the time to present it was absolutely brilliant I got so much out of it and I always enjoyed coaching against you um, because we always had good chats and the, the one thing about you is you're always prepared to share your knowledge even before a game um, which, which I always appreciated but Someone like you just needs to be involved in the game in this country. You took your time over Football Coaches Australia. We had a good chat about that, and that just shows how passionate you are and how you want things done right. Um, so it's great to have you on board. Great uh, to have you present for us tonight. And uh, personally, there's some pretty important uh, roles up for grabs in Australian football at the moment. Um, so I hope 
that your name is front and centre um, for some of them because uh, the country, the game in this country needs your expertise, needs your personality um, and your character, but uh, most importantly, your experience and your knowledge. So uh, on behalf of everyone at FFA, all the coaches on the call tonight, thank you. Um, we really do appreciate it. And the silver lining for us going through COVID is that we've been able to galvanise coaches and really uh, bring the coaching community together and uh, nights like this really help. So thanks from all of us, Ernie.